a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Once again, what led to the diplomatic relations between China and the United States more than 50 years ago to warm up? What led to the rapprochement between Beijing and Washington? Well, short answer is the ping-pong diplomacy in 1971. The historic event played a pivotal role in normalizing diplomatic relations between the two sides in 1971 under Jimmy Carter and former Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping. Now, 45 years on, ties between the two countries have become one of the most important bilateral relationships anywhere in the world. Can we expect some progress in this crucial election year of the United States? Is it still possible to manage the differences, or are we doomed to conflict? Before our interview, let's look at a ping-pong exchange between Chinese graduates and American students during their stay in Beijing. Buzzing with excitement, players from both China and the United States share their ping-pong skills in Beijing. It's amazing. We get a really good glimpse into Chinese culture. Even though we're only here for two weeks, we see so much. We have a very dense schedule, and it's been a really great opportunity for us. Sports definitely, we found, ha is a great way to bridge the relationship um, because both countries, although we have some differences, um, we have some different opinions, but we both like the same sport. And so we can both play the same sport and realize, wow, we have more in common than we thought. <laughs> Paul and Margot are part of a group of students from the University of Virginia revisiting ping-pong diplomacy. The focus is on rekindling the significant 1971 ping-pong exchanges between the two countries, which catalyzed normalized diplomatic relations in 1979. Well, the United States and China have had a diplomatic relationship now for 45 years. We, we just celebrated that on January 1st. And over the course of those 45 years, there's been some ups and then there's been downs uh, uh, as well. And I think over the past few years, things have not been as good as they have been before because of disputes. But I think these are all issues that can be managed through communications. Ambassador Mao believes that China-U.S. relations are now moving in a positive direction after a challenging period. I wanted to do what I could to make those relations better. And I remember as a diplomat when the United States and China did not have relations at all more than 50 years ago, what changed that? And that was the visit of the American ping pong team to China in 1971, which electrified the world. And it worked uh, in terms of opening the door for our countries to establish relationship. And I thought that it was worth trying again. Now that more students, like my students, that have come to China this week, as more people come and communicate with each other, I think that reduces the chances of mistakes or things going wrong. So I'm, I'm hopeful that after a few difficult years that we're headed in the right direction. UVA students tour was followed by a visit the students of Peking University in China made to the U.S. in December of 2023 for the 52nd anniversary of ping-pong diplomacy. At the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., Chinese ambassador Xie Feng engaged in a friendly match with Connie Swiris, one of the U.S. team players who made that historic trip back in 1971. We're the first Americans in there in 22 years. Um, 
I got the privilege of meeting Zhou Enlai, the premier of China in the Great Hall of the People and was able to shake his hand. Um, he also uh, greeted us as we had an audience with him and that was very special for me. This event held great significance. Engaging with young people from the United States during this activity, learning from each other, it truly felt like we were forging friendships through sports. This event has strengthened the bond and the friendships among us. Against a backdrop of distrust and tension between the world's two largest economies, the ping-pong events are designed to promote the value of people-to-people -people exchanges and interaction through sport to create better conditions for mutual understanding. Now, at this hour, I'm joined today by Mr. William Jones, former White House correspondent for Executive Intelligence Review. Bill, so good to see you again after all these years. Let's talk about China-U.S. relations. A lot of uh, developments over the recent months, a summit in San Francisco, followed by this Sunnyland statement on climate. Um, you know, the relations seem to be getting some momentum uh, into COP28. And now Wang Yi, uh, the Chinese foreign minister, as a member of the Politburo, is meeting with Jake Sullivan in Bangkok. Uh, what do you make of all these developments? Well, I think it's very important that there was a, uh, a watershed moment was the San Francisco meeting. It was a very extensive meeting. I think both parties uh, presented uh, in depth uh, what their positions were. They discussed the problems. I think there was more clarity uh, on both parts, understanding what the other side wanted and what they intended to do. It was also preceded by a series of meetings uh, at a variety of governmental levels uh, where the decision was taken that those meetings would be a regular part of the relationship including, of course, uh, 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 summit meetings at the highest level, which is very important. And although the policies uh, differences still remain and the problems uh, still are uh, on the table, I think there's a certain amount of mutual understanding and a mechanism in which the two parties, if difficulties arise, as we expect they will with time, uh, there was also there's also a way of dealing with them immediately through uh, the contacts and the networks and the ties that have been created. Right. Um, we know that Donald Trump has just won New Hampshire, um, you know, uh, gathering a lot of steam uh, going into the primaries. A rematch with Joe Biden is on the horizon. Frequently used accusation traded by both parties during election year is being soft on China. But this time around, Joe Biden can simply say, look, uh, we have strengthened the alliances across the Atlantic, across the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific. So under these circumstances, uh, how do you foresee the China issue to be played up? What's going on in the ground, it seems very clear that that will probably be the case. And you, all of the major issues that have been contested, not only China, but immigration, uh, trade, um, economy, are all going to be fought out, uh, I think, very bitterly. And so you'll probably see within the campaign a lot of rhetoric to uh, which where China is, is in the middle of Trump, of course, I think will attack the fact that uh, that uh, Biden has made such uh, good progress uh, in dealing with China. Uh, he won't, uh, he probably doesn't accept at all the fact that uh, uh, Biden has uh, re, uh, reinstated all these alliances. He may undo that again uh, if he becomes president. 
But I, I think what's going on at the campaign also doesn't tell, never tells what the policy is going to be. So in many respects, if it does become a Trump-Biden fight and China does become an issue, I think one has to look at that with a certain amount of uh, patience because it's what happens after that that becomes important and not what happens during the campaign. One would hope that it would not be an issue, but I cannot see that uh, Trump is going to uh, leave this aside if he does become the candidate and, and tries to retake the presidency. Yeah, Bill, you covered the White House for a good number of years. According to your assessment and the people that you've talked to, your sources, um, who is more likely to win at this point? Of course, polls can shift and change and uh, switch um, month to month. But looking at it now, what do you think about all this? Well, the situation uh, for Biden is fairly difficult because of the age, because of uh, his own position in the uh, in, in the polls. People are not excited about him, even those who want to elect him. They don't see it as a as as an exciting person to, to support. And that could very well uh, affect the turnout. But it's it's very difficult to say because Within the Republican Party, of course, although there's a, a certain amount of enthusiasm over return of Trump, there is also serious divisions among uh, Republicans who, especially those who are in are in favor of working together on certain questions with the Democrats, that they feel that a uh, at a Trump victory will change the nature of the game and probably change the nature of the Republican Party for the long term. They may uh, either not go out and vote or they may uh, kind of hold their nose and vote for Biden. So it's difficult to say. But I remember in the last election, I was asked the same question when I was in China uh, about the possibility of a Trump victory. And I I didn't give it a 50 50 chance, but I certainly gave him a 40 percent chance that he could win. And I was really off uh, by a few percent. And he did uh, win that election. But uh, I think uh, there's also a certain feeling within the political establishment that is both the military, industrial, business, that if there is a Trump victory, uh, much of the gains that have been made, especially in regard to China trade and reestablishing a relationship with the most important trading partner the United States has, that they feel that a Trump victory might, uh, might sabotage that. And therefore, you may see a shift of people who otherwise would not be voting Democratic to to move to the Biden camp. But it's uh, it's going to be, I think, a very tight uh, campaign. Uh, talking about the Thailand meeting between Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, one issue that was discussed is the issue of the Red Sea. Uh, that is a very important channel of transport uh, in the Middle East. Uh, do you think Beijing can play a constructive role in reining in attacks a piracy, for example, in the Red Sea? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Look, China is playing a much more important role in uh, in the Mideast. Uh, you look at the uh, the Saudi-Iranian partnership of sorts that had been created. Nobody really thought that would ever happen. Nobody was really working for that to happen in terms of the U.S. or, or the Western countries. And China was able to step in on that and, and to deal with something that, that nobody else uh, could handle. So they're obviously playing a very important role there. And, and, chi and China is seen as an impartial party 
in uh, these conflicts, whereas the United States is seen as very partial uh, given its history uh, in the Middle East. And so that China has a better position for dealing with these things, uh, kind of coming from the outside with a, uh, with a positive view to all the parties. Whether or not they would have the uh, influence over the, uh, uh, the Yemen, uh, the Houthis, is uh, still not clear to me. Uh, the U.S., of course, is always saying that, uh, that China must use its relationship with Iran, which is extremely important, in order to get control over the Houthis. But it's certainly not clear that Iran has control over what's going on in Yemen. Uh, so I don't know if that's uh, going to be a factor, but whether or not China has a, a direct uh, role, a direct influence uh, in terms of the Houthi situation is still uh, very unclear. But uh, I think they will do everything uh, they, they would want because I think they, they don't like the fact of the ships being bombed uh, for any reason. It will affect trade, uh, including trade with China. But uh, I think uh, the idea that uh, they can put pressure on Iran and Iran will do something to stop the Houthis is kind of a, an illusion on the part of the U.S. But the role that, that uh, China is playing in the Middle East has been very positive. And I think in terms of this whole situation in Gaza as well, as the smoke settles over this, uh, this tremendous, uh, uh, I would even say, genocidal war that's been going on, that, uh, that China can, uh, can play an important role because they aren't a part of the problem. They're seen as part of the solution. To the United States, uh, this issue of fentanyl, this is one issue that concerns many, many Americans. Maybe you can shed light on that issue. And recently, there are reports by NBC that the two sides will discuss this very issue of fentanyl. Why is that important? Why does that matter to the Americans? Well, it's, it's extremely important because, um, because it is a big problem in the U.S. I mean, so many people are dying of the fentanyl overdoses that it's, it's really even worse than an epidemic. It is an epidemic, and uh, and it's it's felt in every city and every you know every town uh, within the United States. There are also stories that I keep getting from local regions that uh, somebody in the press is saying that China is responsible for this, and you know I, it, it's all really ridiculous because I think on the issue of counter narcotics, uh, there is no country that would be more uh, inclined to crack down on that in China, given the, their history yeah. that they've had exactly. since the open wars. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, you I get think, a, a life imprisonment or even a death penalty for uh, shipping somewhere between a few kilos of um, cocaine, you know, within China or ax, outside. Yeah. It's a ridiculous situation. I think what has happened now what was decided is San Francisco, and I think things are going on on the grounds. Things are happening on the ground with regard to this counter-narcotics uh, networks, uh, the problem was that uh, I don't think that anybody even was accusing China of uh, uh, bringing in fentanyl to the country, but there are, the precursor drugs apparently are involved in that or also have been coming from China. And I think there's been a, a crackdown on that. And I think the U.S. is actually working together uh, with the Chinese authorities, at least that's my hope and it's my understanding as well, in order to uh, to deal with this problem, because it I think was clearly understood uh, at the San Francisco meeting that this is a big issue for the Biden administration. I think China will be, you know, bending over backwards to to deal with this because it's also in their interest too. I mean, that's a common interest of mankind is is 
is stopping the narcotics flow. One last question, Bill, regarding America's de-risking policy. We've already felt the impact. Uh, for example, a lot of U.S. governments are stepping up the GA, the Government Affairs Office, uh, auditing if the money comes from the Chinese government or uh, state-owned enterprises or uh, any Chinese investment or funding is potentially connected with the, the Communist Party of uh, China. We also have seen U.S. companies getting out of China, relocating uh, to their partner countries uh, in Vietnam, in Southeast Asia, uh, back to Mexico. How do you foresee this trend to play out uh, in the foreseeable future? Well, it's still it's still a problem for the U.S. They're still talking about it. A lot of it is uh, is a lot of hype. Uh, the U.S. Uh, you know is uh, they could they're producing very good things. The reason that they are behind to some extent is that they didn't have their eye on the ball themselves in terms of technological development. Now they're trying to uh, penalize the People's Republic for things that uh, that they didn't do that China did right which is ridiculous. It does, however, hurt the United States. It's it, uh, as Janet Yellen in particular has been very clear about that it, this de-risking or decoupling uh, is gonna hurt U.S. industries as well because of the tremendous ties that exist between the U.S. and China. And of course, the U.S. has also been pressuring uh, their allies in Europe to do the same thing and to a certain extent, they're going along with it. But given the economic situation in, in Europe, which is absolutely dire in countries like, like Germany, which is totally dependent upon export, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a certain limit to what they're going to do to damage their relationship with China at the behest of the United States. And I think also within the U.S., there is a lot of opposition from American businesses on how far this is going to go because they realize it's going to hurt the U.S. economy. Now we're getting a lot of figures that the U.S. economy is doing fine. But anybody who's going to Costco or to Walmart and is trying to buy food for the family, they realize that uh, it's really very, very difficult today. Bill, thanks so much for joining us at this hour. Thank you. Most welcome. Now, earlier I also had a conversation with a former diplomat on President Jimmy Carter's team working to help establish the diplomatic relations between China and the United States back in the 70s. The organization this gentleman leads right now helped organize the ping pong diplomacy, which paved the way for the U.S.-China rapprochement. Now, he advises senior leaders on both sides for a constructive bilateral relationship. After the break, my interview with Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. You're one of the youngest diplomats on President Jimmy Carter's team working to help establish diplomatic relations between our two countries. Um, what was it like? In retrospect, it was amazing. At the time, I didn't really understand the importance of what we were doing. I always joked that I was the Xiao Tu Do in the U.S. State Department. I was in the legal advisor's office, and because of my background, I was put on the team that was going to help establish diplomatic relations with the United States. And, you know, when you're 26 or 27, you don't understand the implications of what your work is for the world. So we did it. We accomplished it. I remember when Deng Xiaoping came to the United States in late January of 1979, 
established diplomatic relations on January 1, 1979, and we all went to the White House lawn to welcome him. And I remember being so moved by the playing of the national anthems of the United States and China. You know, just standing, on, it was a cold, sunny day, and just standing on the lawn, seeing Deng, seeing Carter, was, even though I was young and didn't understand what this meant, it was a remarkable experience, a deeply moving experience. And what I didn't realize on that date is we had put in process a peaceful, relationship with China for the next 43, 44 years. You wrote about President Jimmy Carter saying that what Carter has taught President Day leaders is that domestic opposition should not prevent the president from acting in the long-term interests of the United States. Today, President Joe Biden can show leadership in a way that improves the political, economic, and social progress in each country without sacrificing legitimate national security concerns and strategic interests. Um, why do you think Carter, a Democratic, uh, did it then, and Joe Biden, a fellow Democrat, in a way, hasn't done it now? There is domestic opposition in the United States to improving relations with China, and there's domestic opposition in China for improving relations with the United States. So what I was talking about was the great leadership to kind of overrule the domestic opposition and improve relations, you know, establish diplomatic relations with China. It's incumbent on both of our leaders to look far to the future, look at what's truly in the interests of the American people and the Chinese people, and to overrule that opposition and take steps to improve the relationship between the United States and China, because your generation and your children's generation need that relationship to be productive in order to have better lives than my generation and than your generation. Steve, how concerned are you about the prospects of this continued clash, of course, between China and the United States uh, in what many uh, in Washington say a new Cold War? Uh, they draw parallels between China and the U.S to that of the former Soviet Union and the United States saying that, look, when there's a near peer um, to the United States, that there is a inevitable rivalry, clash of great powers between the two. If you look at the past paradigms of the rise of great powers versus the existing ones. Every single day I get up in the morning and I say, what can I do to increase understanding? What can I do to increase contact? What can I do to make sure this does not generate into anything that looked like uh, a U.S.-Soviet Union relationship in the Cold War? It is avoidable. What has happened is used to be very narrow. It's now broadened to include so much. Nobody recognizes what the cost of that is. Of course we should each defend our national security. I don't question that China or the United States should defend its national security. But what constitutes national security and what are the consequences of it for innovation, for inflation, for all these other things? So when we have these restrictions, so if China has to invent the same stuff as America does, think about the waste think about the waste. If it's military equipment, okay, I understand it. But the broadening of these definitions has become really destructive 
in terms of innovation, creation, inflation, supply chain resiliency, all of these things, which the truth be told, are good. They're not bad. If there is a cure for cancer, so let's say I get cancer, do you think my kids care if it was the cure was invented by a Chinese or American or a European scientist? They couldn't care less. So the idea that we, either government, should be restricting this joint research is ridiculous. We punishing our people. We can't punish the people. It's not right. It's not fair. There are certain beneficiaries of that, but that is a small minority. Tell us a bit about the story with your late brother and how a bond between Americans and Chinese through commerce changed his perception about what you do. That's a long story, but the, the, um, if you wanted to find someone who's the opposite of me, you would find my brother. In all of my years here, we were very close. We shared a room for 18 years, and then he went to college and then joined the U.S. military, then ended up in Ohio and basically lived his whole life. It went to Ohio State Law School, lived his whole life in Ohio and in Dayton. And I watched this city of Dayton be hollowed out. It was a traditional manufacturing center in the center of the United States. And this company closed, you know, National Cash Register closed, General Motors closed, the facility which built cars was abandoned. And I watched through his eyes. Now, again, he was in Ohio. All the years I spent here, which is half of my adult life, he never came here once. And he never quite understood, you know, my initial work here was helping U.S. companies invest. And he never quite understood that. But then years later, Chinese companies started going to the United States to invest. And lo and behold, one of the largest Chinese investments was made three miles from my brother's house. Mm. So I went to the opening, it mm. was, was Fuyao Boli, and Cao Duang is, is the chairman, and he invited me to speak at the opening. And it was an amazing experience because Governor Kasich was there, Senator Brown was there, Congressman Turner was there, the whole political establishment of Ohio was there. And I watched Dayton be reborn it was reborn because of this investment. So stores and dry cleaners and schools suddenly had 2,500 American families got paychecks. Families got paychecks because of Cao Duang's investment, because of Fuyao Boli's investment. So it was this rebirth of Dayton. So as I spoke and I saw my brother's community reborn, I said, ah, and he's, he's left us. So I said, ah, he probably is looking down from heaven. He says, oh, I finally understand what you do. That's it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. I'll see you again next time.